So my name's Evan. Uh, before we hop into the series that we're getting near an end with, uh, I kind of want to walk through some different aspects we have with church. You know, church is far more, and I say this every week, but it's far more than just getting together once a week in order to praise God and to learn about Him. It's about the community that surrounds you while you're at that church. A community that is there to support you, encourage you, help you become better, uh, help you make it through the hard times. And what we're doing is coming up with intentional ways for you to make relationships with people, um, with fellow followers of Christ. And so in the bulletin, you'll see in the middle upcoming happenings, you know, we got multiple things coming through. Project Grow, they meet once a week, or excuse me, once a month on Wednesdays. It's this coming Wednesday. A chance to go deeper into whatever topic they approach and get some good dinner at it. Uh, We have service opportunities coming up this Monday might be the following, the 28th, so the following Monday, down at the mission. It's such a simple way to bring tangible good into people's lives. We just do it every other month, and you come together, help make the food if you can, but otherwise just be there to serve. And it's amazing how it gives you opportunity to mingle with people that are down and out, and it's amazing how open they are to just encouragement. Um, So we're starting small groups as well. Starting June 5th, uh, we got multiple small groups that are coming around. And from my experience in the last 15 years with my walk with God, I would say that the most consistent impact that God's had in my life has been through small groups. It's a chance for you to be engaged in a deeper fashion of studying God instead of just sitting back listening to somebody like me talk to you. Right? It allows your mind, forces your mind to be truly uh, intertwined with what you're studying. Um, and then the last one I want to focus on, uh, we're going to kind of offer what we're calling churchwide hangs this summer, uh, chances to get together and just have fun, barbecue, go climbing, go to the lake, things like that. And the first one we're going to do is on June 3rd, uh, weather permitting, Sunday at 10 a.m. Um, we're going to go up to a climbing area on the backside of Mount Rushmore, string up a bunch of ropes, have harnesses, things like that, hammocks, kayaks, just a chance to run around in the woods, um, so if you've got any questions, please let me know, somebody else. Uh, just remember that church, a big part of church is about community. And a big way to get to know people is to do things that are fun. So here's some opportunities for it. All right, so let's pray just to kind of engage our minds, focus us in on why we're actually here. Uh, God, we love you or we desire to love you, or we're interested in who you are. For some reason, we're here, and we ask that in the next 45 minutes, you would speak directly to us, that you would engage our minds in the truths that you have for us specifically. We need you, bottom line. We trust you with that. Amen. All right, so we're nearing the end of a series uh, that we entitled The Character of God and the Propensity of Man. And we've been walking through basically 1,500 years of Israelite history, and we're in the last couple weeks of that. Uh, Last week we looked at how the Israelites, both both the northern and the southern kingdom, had been taken captive by the stronger nations and exiled. So they are facing judgment or punishment consequences due to their rebellion against God. And next week when we wrap this up, we're going to look at the redemption that God brings. You know, as, we were, as I was preparing last week and taught, you know, I was looking at why bad things happen to people who make bad choices. You know, it's pretty self-explanatory and logical. 
When you choose to do what is wrong, then you will experience the consequences of those choices. But what's hard to explain and is completely illogical is the way that God can use our own foolishness to make us into better people. And I was going to move into redemption this week, but what kept coming to mind is the flip side of that coin. Why bad things happen to people even when they don't make foolish choices. That's what we're going to look at. Like I said, we've been walking through 1,500 years of Israelite history, and we see why the bad things happen to the bad people. You know, it is a period when a large majority of the Israelites, including their kings, blatantly rebelled against God. Because of the covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai, think about Moses after Egypt, he removes his protection and provision as a consequence for their rebellion. When a nation loses its protector, the stronger nations that surround it will overwhelm it. Right? Logical. Both the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel are conquered and hauled away to faraway lands. This is logical. You reject the one who cares for you, who protects you, then you will be not cared for and therefore taken away by the evil things in this world. But what about those living in Israel who had remained faithful to God? Those who continually sought him with all of their heart, soul, and mind. That's the core of the commandments. Those who made God their priority above all else. Why did they have to suffer? You know, think about people like Daniel, who was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar in like the first or second exile, taken 900 miles away from his home. This guy was 16, 18, 20, right? He was young. But even in the midst of his captivity, he refused to reject God's commandment about what to eat. So as the kings are forcing him to eat steak and drink wine, he says, I'm not going to do that. So if he's doing that while he's in captivity, imagine the way that he practiced his faithfulness when he was in his homeland. Or people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who would not worship the king even though it meant that they would be thrown into a fiery furnace, which they were. Why did they have to suffer? You know, to find... Some of these answers, this is a big question. And to get some insights, we're going to look at the book of Habakkuk. How many of you here have read the book of Habakkuk? It's such a sweet book. It's really hard to find. It's funny. Year after year, I still have not quite figured it out. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, yeah. So it's on page number. Just kidding. All right, so Habakkuk, we'll start with the first four verses, and we'll have it behind me. So the oracle that the prophet Habakkuk saw. So this is something that God gave him. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoings and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack, and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous, therefore judgment comes forth perverted. So we see Habakkuk, just a normal guy, crying out to God, wondering why the wicked within his nation are prospering, why the righteous are continually afflicted, and God will not help. You know, we experience the same thing in our lives. People that are good, right, and you got to kind of figure out what that definition good means, right? Because nobody's really good. But people that love others and are continually seeking to bring God's goodness to their world, 
experience heart, major hardships even though it has nothing to do with their own choices. Let me give you some examples. A man named Nick Ewing that a lot of you know, he's a teaching pastor at Rimrock's main campus. He's the CEO of Christian Life Ministries. Like three and a half, almost four years ago, an unknown disease came into his body and he woke up paralyzed in three out of four of his limbs. Out of nowhere, a man who was extremely active, could not move one of his arms and could not walk. I'll give you another example. My wife, having to watch her husband nearly die and then be my caretaker for months and months while she cared for our two young kids. Had nothing to do with any choices that she had made. I fell from a rock and she had to bear the consequences and the burdens of that. Another one, a woman named Danielle who loves God dearly and has four young kids discovering that she has stage four breast cancer. Why do such good people now and in biblical times have to go through such tough times even though they have done nothing to deserve it? It's a big question. And I'm going to give you a concise answer. It requires a lot of thought and personal exploration, but it is because it is the nature of this world. We live in a fallen world. Our reality has been contaminated by our collective choices to walk away from God's plan for his creation. By turning away from perfection, we brought selfish brokenness and sickness into this world. Socially, we live in a world in which people struggle with anger, lust, pleasure, envy, greed, which influences them to bring pain on others. Biologically, there is no escaping death. God has given us major understandings to fight against diseases, but we have imperfect bodies that will die, whether in early age or later on. It's the nature of this world. We cannot escape the fact that we are imperfect. Good people experience terrible things because of that. No matter how perfectly one lives, they cannot escape the byproducts of a broken world. There's a a small little answer to that big question. Let's go a little bit deeper. If this is true, why doesn't God intervene and help the good? You know, I believe that is the question that Habakkuk is asking, and God answers. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Look at the nations and see. This is God speaking. Be astonished, be astounded, for a work is being done in your days that I told you that you were not believe if I were if you were told. For I am rousing the Chaldeans, it's also the Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. You know, as he continues for the next six verses, five verses, God stops in verse eleven, he tells them of the specific things that the Babylonians are going to be doing. They're going to swoop in take away Israel, all that evilness that they've been doing, and remove them from the promised land. He assures the prophet that the wicked and the unrighteous will face the consequences of their foolishness. So it's amazing. God answers Habakkuk, right? I am going to take care of the wicked. But then we see Habakkuk respond. Verses 12 through 17. Are you not from of old, O Lord my God, my Holy One? You shall not die. 
O Lord, you have marked them for judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for punishment. Your eyes are too pure to behold evil, and you cannot look on wrongdoing. Why do you look on the treacherous and are silent when the wicked swallow those more righteous than they? So the wicked is the Babylonians swallowing the more righteous, the Israelites. You have made people like fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no rulers. The enemies bring all all of them up with hooks. He used to put hooks in their noses and pull them around. He drags them out with his nets. He gathers them with his scene, so he rejoices and exalts. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his scene. For by them his portion is lavish and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his nets and destroying nations without mercy? So we see Habakkuk responding to God by saying, wait a minute. You're going to allow a nation more wicked than the Israelites to destroy them? When you allow this to happen, those wicked think that they are doing what they need to do, and so they continue to praise their warfare and their own logic and their wealth because you allow them to succeed. You know, for Habakkuk and standard human logic, it's hard to justify God's plan. To send a powerful nation that does not know God nor seek to bring him glory to swallow up God's chosen people. You know, for us in our tragic situation, God often responds the same way, whether through word or simply through action. Instead of miraculously healing Nick in one of the countless prayer sessions we had for him, he is now coming on four years of gradual healing. He is no longer in a chair, but he is still unable to run. Why make it take so long and potentially never finish the healing for him? You know, in the first couple of days of my recovery while I was still in the ICU, Rosalind, my wife, felt God tell her that my recovery was going to be hard for the first year, which it was. You know, I'm over two years out now and I'm in such a better spot. But why make Rosalind go through a year of dealing with an emotionally charged and irrational husband that needs to take two-hour naps every single day? You know, Danielle, she's, in five, she's five months into her treatment. This is brand new for her. The initial diagnosis back in January gave her a 5% chance of successfully killing every cancer cell in her body. You know, there are recent signs of hope and things are looking positive. But why make Danielle, her husband, and her four young kids deal with such uncertainty? You know, in each of these situations, the question why powerfully resounds. Why does a God who is all-powerful, why doesn't a God who is all-powerful step in and immediately and miraculously remove the pain and hardship, which he does do at times? Why doesn't he always do that? You know, we, just like Habakkuk, are confident in our responses to the almighty maker of heaven and earth and plan. We're We're totally confident in our responses to God and our plans for his immediate intervention and our timing for that intervention. We ask him confidently, how can you let this happen? What's really cool, something to learn here, is that after Habakkuk asks that, he waits for God's response. Let's look at verse two, chapter 2, verse, verse 1. I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. You know, and we see that God answers. Verses 2 and 3. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. 
If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. You know, for the rest of chapter 2, God explains in detail what will happen to the wicked, to those who rely upon themselves and not on their faith in God. He lets Habakkuk know that in the end, all evil will be done away with, and all those who sought to bring wickedness upon the world would be judged. He takes Habakkuk to the big picture. He pulls him out of his myopic point of view, his narrow perspective of what is in front of him, and elevates him to an eternal perspective from which he can see God's place in the world and his power. Out of this perspective, Habakkuk surrenders his logical argument and submits to God. In chapter 3, Habakkuk reminds himself of what he knows about God and asks God to, ask, to act in the here and now. Let's look at verse 2 in chapter 3. O Lord, I have heard of your renown, and I stand in awe, O Lord, of your work. In our own time, revive it. In our own time, make it known. In wrath, may you remember mercy. You know, for the remaining verses of this book, it's only three chapters, he reminds himself of the specific things he knows about God and his power. He goes through and reminds himself, man, I heard you did this. I heard you did this. I was told that you moved in a powerful way in this way. Reminding himself of who God was and what he did. In verses 16 through 19, he makes a beautiful, definitive statement. Verse 16 first. I hear and I tremble within. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones and my steps tremble beneath me. I wait quietly for the day of calamity to come upon the people who attack us. Because of who God is and what he had promised Habakkuk, he sincerely believes that the day of calamity will come upon the wicked. Out of this understanding that God will do what he said he is going to do because he is who he is, a profound level of trust flows out of Habakkuk's mind and his mouth. Verses 17 through 19. And this is one of the more beautiful Uh, clumps of verses in the entire Bible, in my opinion. Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no fruit, though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exalt in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. So a little cultural context. Those first things that he lists in verse 17, that's basically his portfolio, his bank account, right? which includes his checking, his savings, also everything that he's invested in the stock market. This is how he provides for himself. So he's saying, if all that I depend upon, everything that I am providing myself through goes away, I will still trust you. Regardless of what happens, regardless of of what the wicked take away, Habakkuk claims that he will trust God and his goodness because he stayed focused on who God is. You know, this is a profound and unshakable place to be. When one is able to remain fixed on the creator of everything, the one who has given us today and supplies us with what we need for this moment, 
the one who has promised to someday remove all evil for Habakkuk and for us, then that person will never lose hope no matter what befalls him. You know, I believe in my thoughts and my experience that God wants us to have the same form of view on life, that bigger perspective, to understand that the evils of this world are real, but God is far greater and that someday his goodness will prevail. You know, through the Bible, science, and our own experience, God has proved his existence. He has shown his power, his ability to create incredible goodness out of nothing. He has shown his desire to save all people from their, from their own foolishness. He has proved that he is good and that his love for us is unwavering. He has also promised to redeem us now and on the other side of the grave. He confidently states that he has come to give us the abundant life here and now. It may not be in physical or financial form, but the good life can definitely be had in our minds and our emotions. He also declares that when it's all over, evil, sickness, and death will be utterly done away with. It's impossible for us to even imagine a world where nothing bad exists. You know, when we take a moment to consider who God is and the big picture promises that he gives, it allows us to handle the momentary hardships that we face. What is so beautiful is that often God teaches us these invaluable lessons while we experience the brokenness of this world. Let's go back to the examples. You know, I called Nick a couple days ago and just asked him, like, what he gained, if anything, from his experience. And he said that he has learned from his experience that he has a now, from his experience, he said that he has a new longing for eternity. He understands that the struggles of this life are momentary in comparison to the joy that he will experience when Jesus puts his hands on his shoulders and tells his body to wake up. Because of this new perspective, the struggles of this life seem far less significant than they used to for Nick. You know, in talking to my wife, she said that experience of having to take care of me and deal with the fact that she almost lost me made that verse, blessed are the poor in spirit, come to life for her. We are blessed when our spirits are poor because, our, because of our desperate need for God. That is the greatest gift that we can have because we seek him and we find that he is there. God is continually interacting with us, working within our hearts and minds, giving us renewed perspectives and transforming our lives. Even as we experience the natural consequences of humanity's choices, he will continually intervene in our brokenness, bringing us restoration. I love the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. But in order to fully receive the depth of God's influence, we have to be willing to surrender our own thoughts and plans of how things should roll out and set our eyes on bringing God glory. You know, Danielle is 
still in the midst of her struggle. But within the first two, three weeks of finding it out, she wrote this on Caring Bridge. At this moment in time, the cancer appears to have spread to my bones, which is called metastatic cancer or stage four. Words fail to describe how difficult it was and is to let this news and reality sink in. Final reports and staging are expected Tuesday. We will then head back to Mayo to meet with the whole team for treatment strategies on January 11th. We are grieving and yet still waiting for answers. But God, in his great mercy, has given us hope. He leads us in his perfect timing, orchestrating a well-timed phone call from a survivor friend, getting us to Mayo on a slow day, allowing us to accomplish much in a short time, giving us time away from small children so that my port surgery could heal. Hear this. We have had some dark moments in the last month, to be sure, but God whispers his promises to us. I continue to sing of his goodness and vow to bring glory to God while I have breath in my lungs. Fight like hell the battle you set before me and to love each and every one of you with all of my might. And she quotes a verse. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job's 42.2. You know, I was reading through Nick's Caring Bridge and right off the bat, he has a similar sort of vigor in his approach to God. Hearing my wife talk about the first few days when I was in ICU in a drug-induced coma, a similar sort of strength and reliance upon God was there. But if we want this type of strength when the bottom drops out, we must seek to know God now when life is good and life is easy. We must strive to make him our priority, to intentionally set time apart to study what he has done throughout human history. That's what the Bible is for. Like Habakkuk, we must also intentionally set apart time to remove distractions and still our minds so that we can, way we can contemplate who he is and what he has done. Out of our understanding of who God is, we will be elevated above despair and hopelessness, even as everything falls apart for no logical reason. By remembering who God is in the midst of our struggle, our souls will be stilled. Take a moment with me as we sit here in the midst of goodness just to bring our minds and our emotions before our Creator. God, we trust you right here, right now, as everything is good. In this moment, we trust you. We ask that you would just embolden our trust, that you would sink that trust deeper into our minds and into our emotions, into the heart of who we are. So that way, no matter what the brokenness of this world brings, we can just stay anchored to you. Our hope for all that is good. Thank you for being so continually involved with our lives. Amen.